Welcome to Music and the Church with Sarah Bariza, a monthly podcast about thinking bigger in our faith, our ministries, and our churches. I'm Dr. Sarah Bariza, a writer and musician, and today I am joined by Andy Thomas, who is the author of Resounding Body. And in case you can hear it, I'm also joined by my very young son who I'm currently wearing. Uh, His hiccups have stopped, but if you hear them, that's what that is. That's a small child. I'm not sure if I've mentioned on this podcast that I had a baby this summer, but I definitely did, and he is here with us. Andy, it is great to have you with us. Thank you, Sarah. It's a pleasure to meet you and to meet Frankie, too. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to writing a book about church music? Sure. Um, So I've been involved in church music for nigh on about 25 years now. Um, I began life in the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church, uh, which we've talked about a bit, Sarah, uh, which has a, a particular theology and so on. And then I've kind of moved through various different traditions within the Christian church, uh, both uh, liberal and conservative, all sorts of different styles of worship. And that has fascinated me. Um, but through, through working through sort of church music, I've seen the power of church music, really, uh, to build communities uh, and to, as I sort of argue in the book, to, to build the body of Christ. And I think uh, that is an area where you are doing that, even if you're in a, in a context which doesn't have much resource, uh, be it financial resource or, or musicians or, or what have you. And I think uh, now that situation is becoming more and more common. Uh, if you talk to a church musician, you're most likely to be talking to somebody who is in a context that doesn't have much to work with. And I think those contexts, still you're doing something extremely important. I think you are you're doing something that's transformative. You are building the body of Christ. Uh, and yet, I, I think uh, often those efforts are not uh, sort of brought out into the fore compared to a very high standard of church music, which we see every day here, every day on our radios. And so really what motivated the book to begin with uh, was this desire really uh, to write something that really encouraged what I think is now a majority situation across the Christian church, certainly in the UK, uh, probably in in the US, uh, of people who were doing great work, but with very little to work with. Yes, indeed. And I, you're coming back, like throughout the book, you're arguing that the music making we do specifically in a choir, but I think you might include that to just mean a, a musical body that is working with the church. You often reference choir, but I think it's more than that. Um, you're arguing, I think, that we are making a community as we are doing this. And it makes me think of something I've often told the choir that I direct, which is that we are not a metaphor for community when we sing, but we are in fact in our bodies being a community as we do this act, even in our rehearsing, not just in Sunday morning worship, but we are ourselves embodying community as we breathe together, move our bodies together, as we are in sync with each other, we are doing this kind of thing. And you're looking at that specifically in, and I think the church area, but through that metaphor of the body of Christ or the reality of the body of Christ. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think we are in our music groups, in our choirs, in our instrumental groups, uh, we are being a community in microcosm that can model what the body of Christ may be like. It often doesn't work like that. We hear of all sorts of disputes and bad situations. Uh, but I think fundamentally, 
when we are making music together, when we are acknowledging each other, when we are making room for each other, uh, when we are ignoring all our differences for the sake of, you know, producing uh, the, the best sound that we can, we are doing something that brings us together in a way that is reflective of what St. Paul had in mind when he talked about the body of Christ. Uh, but not only are we sort of being that microcosm, I think we are being a catalyst for the broader community, which is the congregation as a whole. Um, you, I think you have a wonderful opportunity when you are directing uh, a choir or an instrumental group or being a cantor in church or, or something like that, uh, to really bring people out to celebrate their diversity to give them an opportunity to, to experience the wonderful thing that is, that is making music together. I think you're in such a powerful position and that goes for people, you know, in churches endowed with hundreds of people, you know, right over to churches that may have a congregation of 15 or something like that. You are all building the body of Christ. And all important in building it. I'm, I'm thinking of, in each of your chapters, you have this lovely vignette at the beginning of each chapter saying something about um, a church musical experience that you've had. Hi, Frankie. Frankie's got things to say. One particular um, story that you told was about having a visiting choir who had a very polished kind of one voice choral sound. And I didn't get the impression that you were saying that was a bad thing at all, but rather that your choir that you were directing with really not a one voice sort of sound, but where you could pick out individual voices in the choir, that that was also a valid way of being the body of Christ. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, and it's very important, as you say, uh, I, I wasn't trying to say that that, uh, that is a bad thing. Mm -hmm, you know, yeah. there, are, there are these splendid choirs and that is, that is what we see and hear in cathedrals on the radio. And, and that's a wonderful thing. Um, I guess what I would say is there's there's other ways of doing things, um, and the danger is that you put yourself up against that standard and you feel utterly paralysed and you stop. Um, whereas actually, um, there, there is this opportunity when you are directing a sort of an, an amateur choir that is not full of polished, you know, long-trained singers, where you do hear this kind of diversity of tones and sounds and voices. You hear the individuality within the choir. And this is one thing for me that has come out uh, during the sort of the COVID pandemic. Um, you know, we've had these virtual choirs with, with kind of tapestries of individuals in their own homes, wearing their own clothes, looking like they would if they were chilling out, singing away, but everybody joined in harmony. And that for me is a powerful image of how you have individuality fully acknowledged and accepted, but part of a whole that is much greater than the sum of its parts. And that is, like what, that is what you get, I think, when you're in a church where uh, you have a choir, where you can hear voices protruding because you haven't been rehearsing together like professionals for weeks and weeks and weeks. But you have this individuality, yet you have this kind of uh, this sound that is robust, that comes together, that really is, as, as Stephen Guthrie puts it, a sounding image of what the body of Christ might be. I love that so much. What, one thing you talk about, I'm going to um, read from your book here. You say, we are reasonably adept at producing musical scenes 
that unify and you talk about how um you know choir plus organ or a praise band or singing in a choir and you are in community with that group and that is how i've definitely experienced church choirs where this is they are strongly connected with each other but then you also point out that as you say although unifying such musical scenes can also be very exclusive and then you say this is a difficult balance to strike you want the unity but you don't want to needlessly exclude people i'm wondering if you could speak about that yes and this is a really tricky thing because you know you need your choirs to be places where people are connected together probably on a level they wouldn't be if they were sitting next to each other in the congregation and not rehearsing this music that requires harmony and really intense listening to each other um, but at the same time it really depends on how you run your choir and how you open it out to other people, firstly. So, you know, choirs uh, that have a fairly low threshold to allow people within uh, to join in, who sort of open their doors on various occasions to let people join in, you know, with people who rehearse week in and week out. I think that's really important because I think giving people the opportunity to experience singing in harmony supported by others around them who were used to doing this on a very regular basis is really a powerful, powerful thing. Um, but the other thing is how, okay, you've got the, this group of people who, who you've kind of separated in some way from the congregation. You can't avoid that, but it depends on how they react and how they see themselves as a catalyst for the whole congregation. So, you know, expecting your choir members, as we did at, at St. John's in Waterloo, to sort of uh, relay back to you things that you might do that relate strongly to the congregation, such as a, a cultural or a, uh, an, a, an ethical or something uh, thing that kind of grabs the congregation, that draws them out. So for instance, that, that appeals to Sierra Leoneans who are, who are within the congregation as we had at St. John's, or a particular subject, climate change, or something that people feel very strongly about. And so you just make sure that the connections between that, that group of musicians who've decided to make a weekly commitment to an extra rehearsal or whatnot are very strong with the congregation. And there's a real sort of two-way flow between them. This reminds me of something you point out about leading musical worship or being in worship together. And you note that we often think of music as coming from, uh, as, as something like a one-way sort of thing where we, the musicians, are making something for the congregation, but don't necessarily realize that there's all, it's a two-way street. Exactly. And I think, um, so I talk about a, a, a kind of a, a situation in the book, in one of the vignettes, uh, where there was a prominent member, Holly, very colorful, very supportive lady of, of the choir of St. John's, well-known uh, within the congregation, who very sadly died. Um, and this happened on the Saturday night. So the congregation just found out about it cold. Uh, but St. John's Choir, because of the way they knew Holly and her character and the way she would have wanted that, that celebration of life to come through after her death, were just able to sort of release a valve within what was a really tense service the night after she had died. Um, and so there is, there is a sense in which you are providing something to the congregation by way of, you know, a way in which for them to, to sort of uh, focus on an emotion, as Jeremy Begbie points out, uh, or, or to kind of draw out some from, from a chaos of kind of emotions, uh, something that allows a release 
but at the same time it has to be two-way it has to be in sort of cooperation and uh, and understanding between the congregation and and the choir and that that's where it really feels like you're, you're sort of facilitating community as opposed to and this for me is where the real difference is between sort of performance and uh, music within a, a Christian sort of worship service it, it's that it's that element of facilitation between the two rather than you are just delivering this musical product uh, like a work of art that may sound beautiful but sort of lacks that facilitation between the two. So this is making me think about something you mention actually at, at length in your book about uh, musical standards and I get the feeling that for this book you're probably writing mostly to pastors and people with musical training. People who are um, probably used to thinking about they need to be excellent, they need to be well rehearsed, they need to be, um, if they play the wrong note, like that's going to feel like they weren't quite, you know, they, they should have prepared more, that kind of thing. But you, it seems like someone could read this and if they just read a few snippets, they could say, oh, well, we can just show up and do whatever we want because we want to be inclusive and we want to whatever. But you say in your book, on the contrary, it's through the discipline of rehearsing and trying repeatedly to listen more closely to and accommodate others that the transformative process really gets going. So you're, you're not holding these things in opposition to each other, but rather saying, no, the rehearsal part is actually extremely important. You just might not result in the same polished thing as if you had, you know, five staff singers or something. Exactly that. Um, I, I can see how, you know, somebody reading the book very quickly might, might make the criticism that I'm sort of defending low musical standards in the name of building community and that kind of thing. I completely get that. Um, but I would say that, no, on the contrary, this is about how the rehearsal process um, draws you into community with each other, how singing with each other, you know, making room for each other, listening to each other. Those are the sort of behaviours that Paul had in mind when he was talking about transforming ourselves and our communities into the body of Christ. So really, I'm saying the more, the better in terms of the discipline, the more rehearsing you can do with the congregation that you can get away with. And the same with choirs, instrumental groups, the better, because it, it, it's that process that transforms us. But I would want to put caveats around that. Um, I would want to say, just as I think you've alluded to, that you shouldn't get hung up on producing the best product and it being absolutely spotless in its execution. Um, because at that point, it, it does feel like you're just sort of pursuing the music without taking this broader view about why are we doing this, actually. Of course, we need something that, you know, is of a standard, that is not distracting within worship. Um, but to achieve that, you just try something that isn't as difficult, but sounds really quite good. And, you know, the sort of music that comes out of Teze and Iona, I'd also say some... Uh, African-American spirituals and lots of other sort of chant-based stuff can be done fairly easily. Um, I think Gregorian chant's actually quite hard and is often yes. underestimated yes, uh, in its difficulty. Uh, but nevertheless, the sort of chants that come out of Teze and John Bell and so on, they are accessible and they can be done in a way that is not distracting, that sounds good, that facilitates worship. So I would say don't yeah, don't go for something that is complicated. Keep it simple and accessible and don't get hung up on mistakes. 
it's it's a sign that you are doing exactly what you should be doing which is dealing with human beings and trying to draw them into the musical world rather than just dealing with musos musicians and that kind of thing and leaving it at that uh, and sort of ignoring the potential that sits elsewhere for those individuals to experience what it is to transform through the medium of music. I'm curious what you would say to our listeners who are in a church setting where they, as you've said, don't have a lot of resources and maybe they have six singers or maybe they have no singers. And like you at the beginning of the, the book are thinking, oh, we're going to start a choir. We're going to start something what would you say to them as a, as a reason why even to do that? To pursue building a choir or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say, firstly, don't write it off on, on the basis that you think it can't be done. Uh, at St. John's, I, I was told when I got there that it had been tried many times before to build a regular choir and it just wasn't possible at this church. But I think if you, if you know what you're trying to do, and you pitch it, the music, at the right level, and you pick repertoire that is doable and accessible uh, for most people, like Teze Chance, some of the Iona stuff, lots of other stuff as well, um, then you will be surprised if you draw together six people and you, you sing some harmony and it goes fairly well, that will feel like a quantum leap forward quite often from where you were. Uh, and you just feel this new sort of invigoration and this freshness that's been introduced into worship. So I would say, you know, it's not, it's not going to be the right thing for every community. Certainly the idea of building a choir and there are many other options like, you know, just think about introduce a cantor or maybe you've got more people who play instruments than actually people who would like to have a go at singing. Um, but give it a go, see what happens, experiment. Um, and often this is about change in your culture from one that is resigned to a status quo that isn't particularly happy with, you know, the way the music has gone. Uh, but there is this kind of sense that there is no way of changing it. Change the culture as much as you can into one where you're a bit more open and a bit more kind of, uh, you know, forward looking into what the possibilities might be. I guess my, my advice would be stay, keep it simple and persevere would be the two things that got us through at St. John's. Keep it simple, persevere. And then you will find that as, as it develops, other things come, come to light through what you're doing. Uh, there will be something happening through your music. You will feel a new community come together or something wonderful. Make sure you discern that, draw it out, pursue it, because that's the real sort of deep thing that will keep keep the choir, the instrumental group, the community, the cantor going. Andy, you talk about, well, a purpose of church music is to facilitate worship in the full. This is something, the full Pauline sense of worship. And then you also say, well, if, if that's true, then it also should facilitate much more than what happens in church on a Sunday. So what we're thinking about in terms of worship, of being the body of Christ together, worshiping is not just about you know, the 90 minutes of a service, the 60 minutes of a service. Yeah, and I think that's really important. Um, that, that's one of the arguments that I, I try and draw out to underpin the idea that we need to think quite broadly about how we use music in, in a Christian community. Because I think quite often uh, we confine ourselves to thinking about the ritualistic activities that we do, how it facilitates liturgy and all that kind of stuff. Um, whereas actually 
Paul thought rather broadly about worship. And you've got that very famous uh, verse where he talks about offering our whole bodies as a living sacrifice. Um, but not just Paul, also in Luke, uh, you, you find um, people are coming together uh, in a way that is symptomatic of something that is clearly a relationship that goes beyond the walls of that particular ritual they're engaging in at that point. And so we're talking about a deep relationship with each other. Um, but going back to Paul, I mean, it's not just a relationship with each other. He talks about a relationship with the governing authorities. And he, he talks about, uh, you know, in quite a granular way about how we ought to interact with each other and about those beyond the body of Christ and about those with whom we disagree uh, within the body of Christ. And so for him, worship was a whole life thing. It wasn't just about what we do in church. And so when we talk about music facilitating worship, um, it, it seems to me that you need to, if you want to really talk about the Pauline sense of worship, you need to take that broad view and think about how music can be used, you know, in a political activism sort of way, in a way that draws people in from outside, in a way that teaches us to kind of interact with each other in a way that is more Christ-like, uh, which is what, what Paul was really after and what he was encouraging the early communities to do. Um, and of course, you know, someone might come back to me and say, yeah, but that's just a bit of a linguistic sleight of hand, actually. I know we say, you know, music facilitates worship, but by that we really mean what happens in church. And I would say, well, fine, that's, that's one very important bit about church music, but you're missing out a lot of potential there with music about what, how it can be used to really build communities and build the body of Christ in the way that Paul envisaged back in the early days. This is making me think of Jeremy Begbie's argument that um, musical chords teach us something about being in community with each other. Um, and he also makes a Trinitarian kind of argument. Um, but for, for our listeners, you, you, you talk about this in your book, but for our listeners, um, he's basically saying that if you, if you have notes sounding together, they are more than the sum of their parts. They don't compete with each other, but rather they make more of each other. They, their overtones work together. They fill a space in harmony um, without diminishing one another. You can still hear all the pitches. They're still fully themselves and they are more than, more than their parts. And you apply that to what in your case a choir does but really any group of musicians are doing or even what the congregation is doing in singing together they are more than more than themselves as individuals they are and and also it makes me think of again going back to paul you know the way he described the body of christ in terms of there being a hand and a foot and so on and so on there are these separate things that are distinct that when you put them together they form something that is much, much greater than the sum of its parts. I think that is a wonderful, powerful image that, that Jeremy Begbie puts forward. And I think either he or somebody else extends it slightly by talking about how even uh, you make room for somebody sounding a discord next to you. So you might be singing a particular note uh, and you have to kind of allow this other person to sing a different note that really clashes up against your note. Um, but you sort of embrace that because that's what the music is after and you know what comes next and it will resolve itself or it doesn't, but you can see it in the broader context. What a wonderful thing if we could take that, you know, into, our, into the way we interact with each other 
uh, as Christians across the traditions with different theological viewpoints and sort of actively make room for discord um, because it enriches the, the picture itself. And, you know, it allows you to move on to the next stage. You kind of produce this discord as kind of like a dialectic in a way. Um, but it's because of that discord that then you're able to come together and then you resolve onto something different, which is a progression. It's a step forward and it's something that moves you on from where you were. This is like the old uh, iron sharpening iron. You, you get better because of that rubbing against each other. Or um, uh, these days, you know, people talk about grit or resilience in raising children and you have to let them fail. You have to let them have problems in their lives so that they can learn how to fix them. And I think that that's probably also true in the body of Christ. Like we are, you know, how pleasant it is for all of us to dwell in unity. And that unity also has some discord in it in the way that good music has some discord in it. You know, we change chords. We, we want to move from one to another. Exactly. I mean, you need in any healthy relationship, and this goes for church relationships as much as, you know, uh, relationships between individuals and whatnot. You need friction. You need discord to learn, to move on, to think things differently, to engage your imagination. Um, and that is something to be embraced. Paul's point is really around how you deal with that friction and how mm. you deal with it. And there's a good way and a bad way of dealing with it. And I think more often than not, he was faced with the bad ways, hence lots of letters and thankfully lots of wisdom. Thank you for the, old, the, the whole New Testament, right? <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, so this is making me think, uh, just a, a question. This isn't something you address so much in the book, but I'm curious what you would say to um, stronger musicians who are hearing this and thinking, oh, but it is so boring to only sing all that simple music. And do I really want to show up in the choir to the handbell ensemble, to the instrumental group, if all we're going to do is sing a simple piece? Do I really want to be doing this? And I'm curious what you would say, because I think that not just for music directors, but for volunteers in the choir, it can be, I don't know, discouraging Maybe for, for some types of people who are very fluent in, in what they do to then do, do music that is more accessible for everyone. Yeah, and I, I think that, that, that would be a fair sort of point, fair criticism. Um, and I, don't, I think that the onus is on us as music leaders of those musicians and also uh, pastors, vicars and so on to broaden our horizons about why we are doing this and this is really one of the fundamental motivations behind the book mm -hmm. i think you know you need to see the bigger picture and understand why we are repeating five bars over and over again in very simple chord changes um, there is something else going on here apart from making music that is fundamentally important to what we are about as christians and the idea that we are there to build communities and to facilitate them and to try and transform those communities into something that is more Christ-like. And that, that's on us. We have to make that argument and we have to kind of get out there uh, and uh, convince people that, you know, th this is a really necessary thing to do. And it might feel, you know, really quite boring and turgid at the time musically, but look at the impact you are having on the community by introducing to a you know, hundred people rather than taking out the 10 musicians within them, the ability to sing in straightforward harmony. You know, a massive good is happening there. But that's on us. You know, people 
won't necessarily strike on that and understand that bigger picture. That is, that is for us to, to put across, and that, that's what I try to do in the book. This is uh, reminding me of one of my personal soapboxes, which is, I think, uh, at least in the U.S., it's very easy for um, pastoral leaders, for ordained people, to not think of musicians as other pastoral leaders, to not think of especially staff musicians as people who are involved in the life of ministry, and it's rather as if they were administrative staff and nothing pastoral is happening there. And what you're kind of arguing at certain points, like directly in your book, is that musical leaders need to be directly involved in the life of the congregation, which does imply a certain kind of pastoral role. Um, that that, that um, you can't, as a musical leader, you are diminished in your ability if you are completely set off from the whole rest of the congregation, if you are not involved in the life of the congregation. You know, yeah. you check a box, play a service, and leave. Exactly. I, I think you need to... You need to immerse yourself within the congregation, uh, partly, you know, to to enable you to see opportunities to draw the congregation into the musical life of the church and to enable them to experience the music in a way that that is transformative, in a way that sort of is outlined in the book. And what you are doing is fundamentally pastoral. It just so happens that you're doing it in, through this this thing that can be viewed as very sort of technical and specialist and that only a few people can do, which is the medium of music. You, you, are, you are a kind of a pastoral shepherd of the congregation in the same sense as anybody else, maybe not perhaps as the ministers, you know, they have that kind of leadership vision bit that they have to do and that you need to work out, you know, how you, how you fit into that. But you are, you are in a very pastoral role. I think, as a musician. And this is what distinguishes you from somebody up on a stage who's just performing stuff that happens to be talis or something that, 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 that is genuinely, generally done in church. Um, so, yeah. And I, I think this is, this, we do lose sight of this. We lose sight of this in the way that we uh, advertise for and, and employ musicians. Um, quite often the pastoral bit of it will be kind of uh, kind of brushed under the carpet or hidden or deprioritized completely uh, compared to the, the musical roles. And then, you know, you wonder why you get somebody who is an excellent musician, but, it, but is less able to, to kind of uh, draw out the congregation into that musical world. Um, so this is part of, uh, I guess, my soapbox within the book, I would say that we need to put that pastoral role front and centre of what we do. And we need to empower musicians to take on that role. We need to introduce it more into training and into mindsets about this is what it is all about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, a, it's such a complicated thing there, at least in the US, the training bit, the where can you make a living as a musician bit, the there's a lot of pieces and faith is one of them. And I, I feel like, I don't know, I, I think that, that churches in particular often forget that, that that can be part of hiring, that that can actually be an important, a hugely important part of hiring. Um, yeah. And, so if any I pastors mean, are listening to this, let this be a, or people who are on the hiring side of things, let this be some encouragement. <laughs> absolutely. And I think it's also important to say that you're asking a lot of one person, actually. Oh, yes. Uh, if you are asking them to be capable musicians who also have the interpersonal skills to teach non-sight readers, harmony, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, there are wonderful accompanists around who you'd want in your church uh, who just don't have, you know, the, the requisite people skills to engage with all corners of that congregation. And so maybe we need to think more about complementary skill sets where you have somebody, you know, who, who has that role as an accompanist and so on, but then you don't try and bend them into a shape into which they simply can't bend, but then you draw in volunteers to take on the other roles. But this all requires the same thing, which is us acknowledging the centrality of the pastoral role of church musicians and of church music. Which and, and that metaphor of the body of Christ, the, or the reality of the body of Christ, it, it goes back to the main argument of your book, really. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it doesn't have to be on one person. It, it, it can be, you know, on a team and ought to be on a team, arguably, depending on your context. Andy, this has been wonderful talking with you. And I want to point our listeners to your book. So it's Resounding Body, Building Christ-like Church Communities Through Music, and it's by Andy Thomas. But if you just look up Andy Thomas' Resounding Body, you'll find it. And unlike some of the academic books we hear about on this podcast sometimes, this is not only accessible and a delight to read, it's also an affordable book. This is not one of those $150 academic books. This is an accessible book. You can get it as an ebook. Um, and it is so I would encourage all of our listeners, Resounding Body by Andy Thomas. I'll have a link in the show notes at musicandthechurch.com, but you can also just Google Andy Thomas Resounding Body and it will come right up. So Andy, thank you for being part of this podcast. Thank you for letting me know about your book. I'm so glad to have read it. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you for doing this podcast. It's much appreciated. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. You can find the show notes for this episode at musicandthechurch.com where you can also find lots of resources, including my weekly newsletter and podcast for church staff, Getting to Nimble. If you've enjoyed this show, please share it with your colleagues because the best way for them to find it is by word of mouth. And of course, if you'd like to get in touch, just send me an email, musicandthechurch at gmail.com. I'll be back next month with another episode of Music and the Church with Sarah Bariza. <laughs>